Hello and welcome to the Tide podcast, a podcast about type 1 diabetes and disordered eating. Hello and welcome back to the Tide podcast. I'm your host Ella and this time I'm joined by Dr. Carla Figueredo and Dr. Helen Partridge. Um, could I get you guys to just introduce yourselves quickly? Perhaps, Helen, if you go first. Hi, I'm Helen Partridge. I'm a consultant in diabetes at the Royal Bournemouth Hospital. I'm one of the leads for the Compassion Project down in uh, Wessex. Thank you. And Carla? So I'm Carla Figueredo and I'm a consultant psychiatrist working with the Dorset Eating Disorder Service. And I am uh, also one of the leads for the Compassion Project. Great. Thank you both. Thank you both for um, being on this podcast. I know people are going to find it really valuable. Um, so can we start off, Carla, what is TIED? So TIED uh, is an acronym for Type 1 and Disordered Eating. And the term refers to a range of presentations in those with a diagnosis of type 1 diabetes um, that use one or more of a range of behaviors to control their weight. So these behaviors can include emission of insulin um, and other sort of commonly seen behaviors that people with eating disorders um, employ to control their weight, like dietary restriction, overactivity, self-induced vomiting, abusive laxatives. And more than one of these compensatory behaviours can be present at one time. Um, and of course, one of the most dangerous of these behaviours is insulin restriction or emission, uh, which puts patients at a much higher risk um, of short and long-term complications of diabetes. Helen, I don't know if you want to just talk about risks there. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I see the, the the medical side of type 1 diabetes and we often see a lot of emotional and psychological distress with type 1 diabetes because it is an incredibly difficult condition to live with on a day-to-day -day basis. It's, it's fairly relentless. It takes a lot of effort and time and commitment. There's poor understanding from other people. So, you know, I see that medical side of it. Um, and obviously, when it's not going particularly well for someone or someone's really struggling, they are at risk of both the short term problems such as hyperglycemia and dehydration, but then also real significant risks of uh, what we call DKA or diabetic ketoacidosis, where essentially the body goes into breakdown because it hasn't got enough insulin around. Um, and that can be really very dangerous in the short term. And then in the long term, obviously, if people are running high blood sugars for significant lengths of time or there's other elements that play into that, then people can be at risk of eye problems and foot problems and kidney problems. And they're all well recognized. But the concern is that if people are running very high sugars for a long time, which people will do if they're omitting insulin, that there's an increased risk of these complications as well. Now, I was just wondering whether this is a good time, Helen, to just talk about the numbers of people with type 1 diabetes that are, well, that we think are uh, affected by uh, disordered eating and insulin emission. They were saying, what, 30 to 40 percent? 30 percent? So it's thought from studies that actually people with type 1 diabetes are at very high risk of disordered eating. And that's 
that's completely understandable because actually we're asking people to think about what they're eating every time they have something because of the need to look at carbohydrate content and, and whether there's other macronutrients involved, et cetera, and whether that's going to affect absorption and whether they're exercising, et cetera, et cetera. So it's thought that up to 30% of people with type 1 diabetes live with disordered eating or you know thoughts of eat, an eating disorder. But you know, it's very difficult to exactly ascertain what these numbers are. And, you know, we we know it's a hidden condition and that people don't necessarily share it with people because they're often very, they're very anxious about sharing it. They've perhaps had bad experiences with their healthcare team. They're often quite embarrassed that they don't feel able to manage their diabetes. They, they, they can feel ashamed. Some of the emotions that come through are really very strong. And so we, we often don't get a full picture of of where these people are and whether they're being seen and what their true emotions are. So I think the numbers are difficult to actually ascertain exactly what they are, but I think it's a very high proportion do struggle not only specifically with disordered eating, but actually with the emotions and the psychology of living with type mm, 1. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, for me personally, I've seen that. It's a lot to think about all the time and um, certainly the focus on food is um, is difficult for people. How does that compare to to the general population, people without diabetes? What do you know? What the incidence of eating disorders is um, comparatively? Well, eating disorders can affect individuals of all ages, genders, sexual orientations, ethnicities, and geographies. Um, and in the UK, um, between one point two five and three point four million people actually suffer from an eating disorder. Um, and they're saying up to 15% of young women and 5.5% of young men in high-income country, uh, countries suffer from eating disorders. Um, and globally, the prevalence has increased by 25%, uh, but sadly, only 20% of affected individuals present for treatment um, because generally, you know, eating disorders are secretive um, disorders that people... Um, find difficult to seek help for because often they serve quite a big function in people's lives um, and you know it's seen it gives them a sense of achievement for example so um, the figures are, are usually there's quite a wide range of figures that are reported in eating disorders because people just aren't presenting to services yeah that makes sense but I guess it's still fair to say that the incidence among people with type 1 diabetes is a lot higher than the general population, even if we can't get a handle on the exact numbers um, for either group of people. Thank you for that insight, Carla. Um, moving on to a slightly different area. So I, in the media, I've heard um, the term diabulimia kicked around. And with that, the kind of phrase that this is the most dangerous eating disorder because of all those complications that you um, that you spoke about, Helen. Why why do we talk about type one diabetes and disordered eating as opposed to diabulimia? Well, I, I guess because the clinical presentations can be quite different, and when we're using a term like diabulimia, I think the first thing anyone thinks of is bulimia nervosa. Um, but actually, maybe this is a good time to just talk about some of the patients that are in our cohort that we've been uh, supporting and, and treating. Um, so the one interesting thing that we found out is that most of our patients are a normal weight. Their weight's within a normal, healthy uh, range. 
which is not what someone would necessarily expect for someone with uh, with an eating disorder. Um, and they're either so insulin. Uh, insulin emission or restriction can either be directly in that people won't give themselves the insulin um, they need when they eat something. So of course, none of that nutrition is used up by the body. Or they can eat so little that their insulin requirements are much less than they would normally be. And we refer to that as indirect restriction of insulin. So some people can present purely with dietary restriction and uh, no other compensatory behaviors, whereas others may be restricting their diet. They may even be um, having episodes of binge eating and then not taking their insulin. Um, so as you can see, the presentation can be quite different. Uh, it's varied. So I think just using the term diabolemia doesn't give you um, a good idea at the, uh, at, you know, the extent of uh, presentations. That makes a lot of sense because, um, you know, I think I've read and seen about diabolemia is people not taking their insulin to lose weight. But actually, of course, eating disorders and eating disorder behavior is more complicated um, than that and more individual than that. And I guess by referring to all of those behaviors, you can help everybody with type one that's struggling with um, with those problems. So I guess now this gives us a good chance to talk about the Compassion Project a little bit. Helen, would you mind explaining um, what the pilot is, what's going on and how you're, um, how you're helping people? So our story started around three, four years ago when I was seeing a young lady with a history of uh, an eating disorder who then later developed type 1 diabetes. And there was a lot going on in her life. And we started to notice in the clinic that her weight was going down and her HbA1c was going up and she wasn't in the right place at that time to really talk to us about it. And, and you know, time was going on and we could see things changing as, as, as those parameters were deteriorating. Um, I knew about her past history, but I simply didn't have the skills, um, either communication skills or clinical skills um, or psychological knowledge to be able to support her properly. So actually I, I reached out to uh, the local eating disorders team and just said, look, can we do a joint visit to see this young lady? And it took me a long time to convince her to agree to that, to, to the patient to agree to that. Um, but actually it was a fantastic result um, and it, it really helped us get a management plan together for this young lady. Um, and she did really very well out of it. And actually, then we started to build this this team and this rapport between us and the eating disorders team because we spent a lot of time trying to support this lady and develop protocols and processes and get things in place so that we could support her from a truly holistic point of view in a multidisciplinary fashion. And then um, purely by coincidence, NHS England were picking up on this. Um, there had been a lot in the media about it following some high profile cases and very sadly um, some deaths and some money was proposed from NHS England to set up some pilot projects to look into exactly this how a multidisciplinary team would work between physical and mental health and because we'd had that experience and we'd started to develop a team and the most remarkable team who all now work together we were interested to put forward a proposal which is exactly what we did 
Um, and we're very grateful to um, be awarded uh, some money to run a pilot project. There was us and a team from the London who we do work very closely with um, to share learning and protocols and procedures, etc. And so we developed the Compassion Project, which is in essence a multidisciplinary project between the mental health team, so the eating disorders team from from Dorset and the the diabetes team from Bournemouth as the hub. And then we've also uh, working with the Portsmouth diabetes team and the Dorchester diabetes team who also have spoke models working with uh, teams from the eating disorders service. And it's a, as I say, a multidisciplinary team working, looking at how best to support people with type one diabetes and eating disorders, because there are no there's very little evidence out there. There's very little processes and procedures of, of how best to manage people, what therapeutic manoeuvres work best, what sort of level of support works best from which team. So that's the sort of thing we're trying to now work on with the experience of working with these uh, usually young people and the, the issues they're living with. Interesting. So is tide or diabulimia or any form of type 1 diabetes and eating disorders, is that a recognised medical condition? Within the, the diabetes community, it's certainly a recognised uh, condition. But having said that, there's no recognised definition for it. It's not, it's not a, a condition in its own right. It's not picked up on any of the... Um, uh, the uh what are they called screenings oh in the um classification of disease yeah yeah, dsm dsm and rcd 10 11 now so yes it is it's absolutely recognized within the medical um fraternity but it's not a recognized medical condition in that it doesn't have a fixed definition it's not recognized by icd 11 etc it's something we're working with and we're very keen to promote that um, and to actually get it recognised. And I think one of, the one of the issues that people have is that because they're not sure how to deal with it, it's, it's often easier not to open the can of worms in the first place and not to start asking the questions and, and to you know, raise issues. We, we all know people with type 1 diabetes struggle on occasion to to give insulin or they forget or there's so much else going on in their life that you know diabetes just doesn't seem important and I guess it's it's challenging to sometimes then as I say open that kind of worm to say well okay what's going on how are we going to support you if, if the healthcare team don't feel they've got the support to to be able to ask those questions it, it's easy not to do it um, and I think that's you know, it, it's a reflection of the diabetes teams often, but I, I don't think people are often confident in, in doing that. And there's a recent study um, from West Hampshire looking at exactly that, and people didn't feel confident in knowing how to open that kind of worms without then having the follow-up support or questions to be able to ask. So we, we've been working on a uh, – well, we've come up with a working diagnostic criteria uh, along with our – collaboration site. Um, shall I go through that? It, so we, we've set out three criteria for the diagnosis. Um, the first one is, and, and you have to meet all three criteria. So it's, it's people with type 1 diabetes who present with all three of these criteria. Number one, 
disturbance in the way one's body weight or shape is experienced, or an intense fear of gaining weight or becoming overweight. Criteria two is a recurrent, inappropriate, direct or indirect restriction of insulin and or other compensatory behaviors that I've spoken about. Um, and number three, the person must present with a degree of insulin restriction, eating or compensatory behaviors that cause at least one of the, fam uh, one of the following, uh, which is harm to health, clinically significant diabetes distress, and impairment in areas of functioning. Helen, do you want to say something about diabetes distress and what we've seen in our cohort? Yeah, and I think it's also important to raise the issue of impairment in functioning because that can be so multifaceted and it could be within relationship, both family and friends. It could be within work. It can be within social functioning. And they can be very destructive it can be a very destructive condition that, you know, actually really infiltrates daily living, um, which is why people are able to hide um, and, and, and families and colleagues and friends find it very difficult to support. So we, in diabetes, it, it's recommended that we measure some form of psychological uh, assessment each, each year. Um, and one of the easiest things to do is a measure called the Diabetes Distress Score or the DDS2, which measures two parameters around how someone feels about living with their diabetes on a day-to-day -day basis and whether they think they're, they're managing well or whether they feel they're failing with it. And and we certainly noticed that with our cohort, people actually score extremely highly on the, the DDS scale. So often 10 or 12, the maximum score being 12. Um, and it's very easy to see that people can, can really struggle with, with diabetes. Um, and there's often this perception that people just aren't doing it, that, that people have, you know, they can't be bothered or, you know, well, why aren't you doing it? Why don't you just take your insulin? And actually, it, it's never as simple as that. People aren't making a conscious decision to to not take their insulin or to not measure their glucose or, you know, to not look at what they're eating. It's actually usually much, much more complex than that. And actually there's so much going on in their lives that they just don't feel able to do it. And sometimes it's easier to, to not know what's going on. Um, if someone's running their sugars high all the time, then actually it's, it's sometimes nicer to not know that. And so then it's easier to not test the sugars anymore because they don't want to know where they are. And if they don't know where they are, then they don't have diabetes. And, and, and actually, that's, you know, it's not a conscious decision that people are making. Um, and I think it's very easy to forget that. And, and a lot of people have had an experience with, with family, with friends, with healthcare professionals that they've been told, well, just, just get on with it because otherwise you'll go blind. You know, get on with it or your legs will fall off. Do you want your legs to fall off? Why are you doing this? And, you know, people aren't making a conscious decision to cause problems. This is, is something that they simply can't manage. And I think we need to, as medical professionals, get our head around that, look at the way we're talking to people and actually starting to address some of those issues rather than trying to, to punish people and, you know, threaten them into to managing diabetes differently. Mm, that's really true. Because you know what? It's you feel guilty enough yourself when you're not getting it right. I know I do when my sugars are running high for a couple of days and I just don't know what's going on. That's, it makes me feel horribly guilty whether it's in my control or not. Um, so I think having kind of outside external forces, external people 
um, adding to that guilt isn't helpful in any way. Yeah, I, I've heard, I, I've learned a massive amount about diabetes since I've been working with, you know, from Helen, but also from, from my patients and having people on the inpatient unit where, you know, I've got a close contact with them. And I just never realized what an absolute full-time job it is. Um, and all the things that, and all the factors that can uh, make your blood sugars out, even though you're doing the best job you can and you're doing it by the book, uh, it's really opened my eyes to things like mm -hmm. temperature and activity level and alcohol and, um, you know, all sorts of things that I would say probably people out there just don't have any concept about. You know, at first, I thought it was just, oh, test your glucose and give yourself enough insulin, you know, uh, but it's a lot more complex than that. So you can understand yeah. what the burden must be like. Absolutely. So I guess um, you two both come from uh, kind of the different sides of the spectrum, the eating disorder treatment side and the um, diabetes treatment side. Both those conditions, um, from my non-medical perspective, seem really, really complicated to treat alone. How complicated does it get when they're presenting together? It, it's an interesting question. I, I, from, from a medical point of view, it feels an awful lot safer treating them together um, and having that support. And just a little anecdote, I remember seeing right at the beginning of doing this, I remember seeing a young girl who came to clinic and it's the first time in my life I've sat in a clinic and thought, I really don't know what to say. I, I just had no words to help this girl move forward because she was so stuck where she was, not taking any insulin at all. And I just had nothing, I had nothing in my armamentarium through all my years of medical practice to know what to say to this young lady. Fortunately, because I had the eating disorders team working with us, you know, this is what they do. This is what they're brilliant at. And so using that support together. So although the patients are really complex and there's a lot of physical and emotional and psychological stuff going on, that's where the beauty of working together comes because you're able to, you know, draw on each other's expertise and, and sometimes we can't make it right. Sometimes, you know, we're we're just walking alongside someone and supporting them until they're at the point where they can make it better or they can get things to where they want them to be. But at least we can we can share that. And we we run a, an MDT every two weeks now where we discuss everybody and that shared learning and experience. And, you know, we could try this and review in two weeks' time. It really is desperately important because you, you simply can't do it on your own. And as you say, they are so complex and there's so much going on um, that actually you need that you need that team to be able to manage it. What's an MDT, please, Helen? Sorry, say again. MDT. Yeah, what's an MDT? So the MDT is the multidisciplinary team, and for us that involves uh, the consultant diabetologist, a consultant psychiatrist, and then from the eating disorders team we have a specialist dietitian and a specialist eating disorders therapist. And then from the diabetes side, we've got two diabetes nurse specialists and a specialist psychologist. Uh, and they all contribute to the team and help to make ideas and decisions and plans moving forward and to help write all the processes and the protocols. And, you know, everyone's as, as important as each other. And in fact, I'm probably the least important person on the team, which is quite nice. Oh, I wouldn't um, say that, Helen. With the diabetes yeah. boss, but, but it's you know that 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 teamwork structure is desperately important. You can't do this on your own. You know, no one has the 
skills. It's really important. Actually, it's an interesting point. It's, it's desperately important for the person that you're seeing, the person who's living with these conditions, that actually you do understand both because they live in this world where diabetes is everything, where their eating disorder is everything. And if they try and see a specialist who actually has no idea about one of those parts of their condition, then they, they won't have the faith and the trust um, because they'll say something and you'll, well, hang on, tell, what, what's, what's diabetes? Tell me about insulin. And someone with type 1 is not going to respond to that at all. Um, and the same for eating disorders. You you have to know a bit about everything. So that shared learning through the MDT mm -hmm. is desperately important. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I have one final question for you guys um, to wrap up. Obviously, what's happening in Wessex is is just one small area, one small group of, of patients that you're able to help. Um, what's happening about TIDE nationally? What's, what should be happening? What's kind of blue sky thinking to help all these patients that that suffer with this that we just don't know about? That's a really good question. <laughs> um, so we're, we're working very hard with, with the team at the London for shared learning so that hopefully we'll be able to, over time, share what our experiences are and, and publish resources and you know, protocols that we know have worked. So, for example, inpatient protocols we've now used quite a few times, so they will be readily available for other people to share. Obviously, on a local scale, we're publishing data, we're, we're publishing articles of things that have worked, we're um, working with local teams to try and help them with education and supporting them. In terms of what happens nationally, it's a really, it's a really important point. We, we've spoken with NHS England. Their view is that something needs to happen, but it's a case of, of what. And, you know, as with anything in the NHS, it comes down to funding. Who's going to fund this? Where's it going to come from? I think everyone accepts that we can't go back to business as usual, that we've tried the pilots. Yes, they were very successful, but you, you can't go back to nothing. Um, but it's how you work those into current systems. So, for example, we, we are seeing a cohort of people. When the pilot ends in July, we can't now then just say, well, thanks we've we've done our bit you know go back to your healthcare team um so i think there's issues locally but absolutely on a national level i think there's some some relatively easy things we can do we can look at education resources we'd love to do an online education portal so that people have then got access to any experience that we've developed um but i think it does does need some serious thinking about and I know we're, we're, we're talking to local commissioners and to you know national teams just to look at what what can be done as some sort of support like this does need to be rolled out nationally um, how that's going to happen and how that's going to pan out in the future we, we don't yet know I guess Helen what we've learned from um, from working together and what we want to promote is um, that teams just talk to each other. So actually, you know, we can wait for a big national rollout and the money to be available and all that. But actually teams can just start talking to each other from now. It, it doesn't have to be extra funding for that to happen. That's what we should be doing when people have a physical and mental health comorbidity. Um, and yeah, and that's what we're, we're really trying to promote. Thank you both. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think you know, until until there's the systems and the funding in place to kind of do it properly, um, the best thing is for people to to be educated, right? To to learn more about it and to um, to talk to the people with the expertise, which hopefully this podcast will help with, and um, and all the other work that you guys are doing. Mm -hmm.
Thank you for listening to this podcast. In the next episode, I'll be joined by some more Tide specialists to talk more about risk factors for type 1 diabetes and disordered eating. So keep an eye out for that episode.